0: Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik.
1: Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatik here with Aaron Cameron, live at the Toronto Real Estate Forum, in person. It's packed here. It's happening. I, I, I not be uh, more excited. Yeah. I don't know when you're
0: listening to this, when this gets released, but this is day three. And so we're yes. all, including our
1: guests, I'm sure, is kind of going, okay, let's just get through this. <laughs> yeah. We've been talking about real estate for a while. So this is part of the, the speaker video series put by the Real Estate Forum. Our sponsors are Dow Vukovic, ML Emporio Properties, Rycom, and Turner Townsend. We thank them, of course. And our guest is Jan Kessel, President, Environics Analytics. Welcome.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: So Jan is moments away from uh, her panel today. we we got a little time with her here, which is is nice. But her specialty, I guess you've defined it as not being real estate or direct real estate. This is more real estate adjacent.
2: Our specialty is really data, being data-driven. And so we work for real estate. We have for 20 years, and we're very much engaged with that industry. But we also provide similar kinds of industries to to banks and insurance companies and retailers and travel and uh, you know, a wide variety of governments who are really trying to understand different parts of the population and understand how demographics and lifestyles and psychographics and you know, socioeconomic status really impact people's decisions and how to use data about those populations and about different markets to really put your money in the right place and get results for your business. So very much involved with real estate, but not exclusively with real estate.
0: It's decision-making. You're you're involved with
2: decision-making and community in all aspects. What what we like to talk about is data-driven decision-making. You can read any business book, that an article these days that tells you it's really important to have data. You have to harness your data. And there's been great advance in that a lot of people have purchase data or set up data programs inside their own organizations. But having data alone doesn't really help you unless you organize that data and you understand the business problems you're trying to solve and you use that data to really create outputs that you can put into action so that the data can make a difference to your business so you become more profitable or more successful or in case of governments, you're serving your constituents better you know we believe that data really makes people's lives better but in order to really benefit from all the investments that are being made in data and analytics and ai and machine learning that you really have to start from the business questions and so you know what's happening in my world how are things changing you know how do i engage with those customers or citizens that i want to connect with or businesses And the devil's in the details. I was going to say the devil's in the data. (laughs) Yeah.
0: How did you get into this in the first place?
2: So I'm a mathematician sort of by training. That was my schooling. And I've always kind of just thought that way that, you know, we can use statistics and math to solve a lot of problems. And so I've really been doing it my whole life, which is a long time. I've been in the business for more than five decades And the first part of my career, I did work in government in a statistics office for the province of Ontario. And there I was exposed to early uses of the census. Like, you know, if I put a dot on a map, how can I understand what's happening in the area right around my trade area? This was before we had geographic information systems, before we had personal computers. So I had really great training in understanding how data could be used for different problems. And working for the the government, I had to be the go-between. Statistics is a federal responsibility in Canada. And so Statistics Canada, in those days, was the main provider of all kinds of data about everything. But for the province, Ontario being a big province, but like any other one, we had to think about healthcare and education and transportation planning and business development and economic development. So I ended up, after being a... kind of a statistician and working on different projects. I ended up being the liaison between the provincial government and the federal government and doing federal provincial negotiation around data needs and data priorities. And even though it was a long time ago, it still grounded me in understanding that, you know, data are really important, but you have to understand the problem you're trying to solve. After doing that for a couple of decades, and it was really a, a great you know, in those days, working for government was a great calling. And, and I, I, I had a lot of a lot opportunity. Of felt like you to had learn. something
0: like a purpose. Yes.
2: But I also knew that if I was going to advance in my career, I either had to leave the government or go into some other kind of program because I was leading that statistics organization for Ontario, which was small, but still, you know, that was about as much as I could do with that. And around the same time, I had the opportunity to work for a company called CompuSearch, which was the pioneer in Canada for making data available to the private sector in ways that it can help with business problems. And their business really evolved from helping retailers understand where to open stores. And they were the first company, now I'm talking in the 70s and 80s, they were the first company to go to the government and say, we'd like to take government data and use our own techniques to make it more available and more usable to the business community. So the mall developers and the retailers were really pioneer customers for us. They hired me because they were expanding and they wanted to make those same kinds of of data, value-added data products available to the government. So I came there first as a salesperson and a consultant to take the data that they had and leverage it back to the kind of government applications that I'd worked in. And I did that for a few years and then eventually worked on the product side and finally I became president of that company and I was president of that company from nineteen ninety-three until two thousand during its most prolific period of growth. Where what was really exciting for me was now we had a lot more than government data. We had private sector survey data and we had people were starting to collect their own customer data, like you know, retailers and banks had more information in the early days of CRM. So the challenge was always to take the methods of analyzing segments and groups of people and adapt it to the way the world was changing on the outside, both in terms of technology and also in terms of consumer behavior. And that company grew a lot, and, and it went through some ownership changes And while I was president. And eventually I left, and I decided that I wanted to start the business for myself. And so I started a similar kind of business. This was in 19... 19- sorry, in 2003, I founded Environics Analytics. And Environics is a was a pretty well-known brand because Environics Research was one of Canada's leading pollsters. And so they did survey of, you know, consumer behavior and, and something called values and attitudes. And they did a lot of public policy work as well. And although it seems like a natural fit, it was really a bit of a new thing to combine the kind of data mining, and we were doing work at the six-digit postal code level. You know, if you tell me your postal code, I can tell you a lot of things about you. Because even though it's not always true, people kind of behave according to their their type. So we combined the principles of market research with that, what we call geodemographic method, and founded Environics Analytics. And we're almost at our, well, we just passed our 19th year anniversary. From one, we're now 300 people. We provide all kinds of data, demographics, segmentation, media behavior, psychographics from all different sources, about a hundred different sources. We bring data together. We use many different kinds of models and we end up making about 30,000 behavioral as well as demographic variables available for 700,000 postal codes. And then we put that into software with algorithms and routines and reports so that businesses can actually go and say, "Well, how many people were, you know, in my store last last week?" Using a footfall kind of measure, or what are the different segments of people who were cooking at home during the pandemic versus ordering food in? Like, we can get r- right down into the granularity, and so Enveronic's Analytics has kind of led the industry providing detailed data. We license it to customers and they can do it themselves or we do projects for them. And we also are specialists in sophisticated site modeling. So predicting sales at a location or looking at consolidation. And one of the most exciting things in the past couple of years is to really go from looking at physical location and trade areas and market studies to combining those kinds of data about consumers with the whole digital ecosystem. So, you know, going all the way to if someone saw my ad, did they actually buy something and did they buy it online or offline? We've evolved as a company and I've evolved in my career at like, how do we adapt to different kinds of data in the outside world and different kinds of business challenges to help people be data driven? I'm also very involved with Sort of a broader effort to help Canada be more competitive by being innovative, and you know Canada is a very small market, and we compete in a in a challenging world. But we have many unique value propositions. So, you know, making sure that that Canada prospers by being data driven also, in my view, makes ensures that that you know people's lives are better. If in the real estate industry, we're responsive to kinds of things people want in new developments. Like if people are working from home, do they need kind of conference center facilities or, or you know, workplace facilities? The whole debate we've been in on the last few years about what's the right mix in terms of mixed use. The more we can use data to build better products in the private sector, as well as, of course, help with things like healthcare and schools and transportation planning. I, I truly believe that being data-driven makes people's lives better.
0: Decisions driven by data. Like it's. I want to get into, we absolutely will get into just the implications of the data and what it means for the commercial real estate community and decisions on where to build, what to buy, you know, et cetera. Because I think that obviously is where your value add to our community you know, really, you know, uh, hits, the, hits the pavement, so to speak. Before we get there, as you were kind of going through your background and, and the story of founding this company 20 years ago, I'm thinking big data is new. And you're thinking, no, it's been around for 50 <laughs> years. It's not new. It's just starting to become part of the way that decision makers, decisions driven by data, decision makers are now realizing how important data. So I, I wonder, you don't have to answer this question, you're probably, you know, part excited because finally it's becoming way more, you know, center of decision-making, part frustrated because it's like, well, I've been saying this for 50 years that it's this important, but finally people are starting to to take it seriously.
2: Well, no, it's a great question. I actually like to talk about that a little bit because data has been important and been around for, for 50 years. And especially, you know, we're in the real estate discussion here. So remember location, 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 and everything happens somewhere. And what's really exciting for me is that, and what's old that's new again is the idea of location intelligence, you know, really understanding where things happen and using those kind of data is, is we've been doing that for years and, and we've we've got many wonderful customers who've been doing it for years. But there is a bit of a perception that that's a new idea. So that, that's the one thing that's frustrating. But on the subject of big data, there is a kind of a dividing line. So, you know, the kind of data that we worked with for years, as I mentioned, came from survey data or census data or our ability to take compiled data like, you know, obviously aggregate, not individual, but aggregate profiles of what kind of cars people buy or, or their financial behavior. But what's really changed is we have a whole new kind of data now. It's data that people couldn't call breadcrumbs or data from the Internet of Things or, or data from phones that can tell us a tremendous amount of information and when we say we have 30,000 variables for 750,000 postal codes, in the great scheme of things, that's not that big right now. But let me just tell you a little bit about something else we're doing because it's really relevant to the real estate sector. And that is, we are working with data from phones and internet. And number one thing is, it's very important that that all be done in an extremely privacy sensitive way. Mm-hmm. So people sometimes get a little concerned when you say, well, we're looking at where cell phones go in order to see, you know, who's in stores and what they're doing and who's driving by my store and going by my competitor." So at Envronics Analytics, we're the pioneer and the leader in taking data that have permission, either explicit opt-in permission where necessary or implied consent where it makes sense in using de-identified data
0: De-identified, yes, meaning— Yes, so
2: it doesn't have the name on it. And using those data that go into models that predict human behavior. For example, every night we download from a variety of sources 600 terabytes of data from the mobile phone movements of Canadian phones. And again, already de-identified, totally consented. But from those databases— We have to run right in in almost real-time algorithms to eliminate outliers. We have to ensure that we're curating. Like having lots of phones when you're thinking about where phones go sounds like it's a plus, but you also have to make sure that you're using the phones that are seen often enough that they can provide reliable patterns because people are going to spend millions of dollars on bricks and mortar and marketing and merchandising and you have to make sure the data are of good quality so that's big data when you're bringing big data sources like that and we have a hundred statisticians who mostly have experience in geography and spatial analysis and and operations research as well as predictive modeling so when you're taking these huge feeds of data that are all location enabled, and you're trying to use them to come up with a simple summary that says, you know, last week on from Thursday to Monday, you know, for the flyer uh, weekend, we can see how many people went to this grocery store versus this other one. That's really the the kind of the power and the opportunity with big data. And then you could say,
0: well, and you had a sale on for this versus you had a sale exactly. on for that it's, that.
2: it's it's an attribution technique because really when we talk about advertising and advertising effectiveness, we do the best job we can right now in the data industry, but what we're really all searching for is a good effectiveness measure. And so when you're dealing with also with a lot of online advertising and you're dealing with with flyers, both physical and store promotions and loyalty programs. What you're trying to understand is of all these possible touch points for the consumer in the retail world, which things really make a difference? And so harnessing those data and combining the new kind of data that I'm talking about with the old kind of data. We have a system called PRISM, which is widely used by developers and retailers to understand their different customer segments there are 67 types of consumers and citizens and the classification is at the neighborhood and postal code level and those things have been traditionally used for a long time but when you combine you know who during different phases of the pandemic for example because we now can see the what we call the the bricks the the you know the people who went inside stores compared to the clicks that we can see from the web behavior. When you look at clicks and bricks using that phone-derived big data and you combine it with a segmentation or you know, maybe a, an attitudinal value system, we can say the kind of people who probably had four or five different kind of people, and these people preferred to, you know, shop online completely, but when the stores were open, they went back into stores versus now after the pandemic, there are a lot of people who are you doing both, or there's a revitalization in going into the bricks and mortar, but there's different, for different purposes. Some people will research online and go in, other people will go in and go home and order online. And so combining the real big data with the more traditional data is what's been super exciting.
1: So purely, purely as a thought exercise, if privacy concerns were eliminated and you get perfectly granular, detailed data, how much more effective would it be in trying to pinpoint human behavior?
2: So, I'm a great advocate for privacy. I I am too. Yeah, this is just just a thought exercise. I understand. So, but I'm so I'm going to say that first because you know what we do when we get data, whether it's in cell phone movement or survey data or administrative records. You know, we had disclosed to people and the the principle of the laws, whether you're talking about Europe or the old laws or the new laws in Canada, the principle are that you disclose what you're going to do and you do what a reasonable person would reasonably expect. And so for me, having worked in this space for a long time, it's hard to conceive of, well, if we didn't have those laws, what could we do? What I would say is that what we do is statistically as reliable as if we had kind of the no holds barred, which they have had in some other countries. In fact, now in most developed countries, there is this constraint. But when you use just pure raw data without aggregating it and testing it and modeling it, which is part of what we do to protect privacy, but the reality is you actually get better data because you eliminate the outliers, because you look at at trends. And, And since we have all this ability to use what happens locally as part of our algorithms, we get good quality data. And when we test over and over with clients, what would be predicted and what would be expected by using pure raw data compared to using curated, value-added, statistically refined models, we get as good or better data using the data that we've had to refine. Now, having said that, having the largest volumes. Like, for example, Canadians are much more conscious of turning location off on their phones than Americans are. And most of the feeds that we get that come from permissioned apps come from apps that might be available globally. And most things happen between Canada and the United States in a ratio of kind of 1 to 10. But on the number of points that we can see a phone regularly between Canada and the United States, it's about 100 to 1. So in other words, in a big country like Canada, the movement patterns are sparse. So we've had to overcome that by using multiple sources, by combining them together, and then also by adding data from telecoms into the mix so that instead of just looking at the GPS data, we can add other sources to make it better. The big thing about all of this data work is that, you know, you don't just go get a bunch of data and throw a, a statistician or, a, you know, a program at it. You have to have people who have got the business experience to choose the right data and choose the right methodology and think about the problem you're trying to solve. Because as I said at the beginning, like there's a lot of people, myself included, who can get really excited about the cool stuff. But you have to make sure if you're a business that the investments that you're making are really going to be able to go and be put into action. And you don't want perfect to stand in the way of good. You want data that can really help you with a decision. And
0: It's a scientific process. You almost start with a thesis and then go and prove it, yeah. right? And to a certain degree. Yeah. We had Rosemary Feenan on from Quadra Research, and she was talking about, and this is getting into sort of sources of data. You talked about you know, cell phone migration movement. She had mentioned smart lampposts. And, and these lampposts that are, I guess, tracking humans walking by and, and that would track volumes. If that's one, are there other sort of sources of new new data availability that's really getting you excited?
2: For sure. I mean, anything that can track by connecting to your phone or, you know, that that's like a. we're only scratching the surface just by looking at what's actually in the mobile phone. Understanding through the internet, devices that are in homes, but also the way businesses are wired. Like we're in the stage now where if you have a large mall or a large format retail store, there can be sensors that are actually within your own internal wiring, like almost like cells that can detect which aisles people are in, how much time they're spending in different parts of stores. So this is a very exciting opportunity in real estate as well to understand not only who's coming to the destination, but what they're doing once they're inside that. And the things like the devices that can be in, in sort of the street network, they can help with city planning and they can help with transportation planning. So these things all have huge potential to make us smarter, but that's where we have to be intentional about what we could do and what we should do. And the should is from an ethical point of view based on disclosing and doing the right thing. But also what should we do from a methodology point of view? Like I believe that the more we work with data, the more we have to have some standards around best practices and quality as well as around consumer protection.
0: That's where I wanted to go next maybe. And then we're going to get into the meat and and of the just the conversation. Oh, we've only got about five, ten minutes <laughs> left. So we'll go quickly, yeah. There is that negative connotation. Like I, I always hear this story. Is I don't know if this is true or not, but if you're gonna go book a research or, you know, search online for flights or trips and travel, go to your library because it'll be cheaper at the library station than if you do it on home. Cause at home they'll know that you have drive a Mercedes and that for the price for the, the airplane and the all inclusive will be inflated as a result of them knowing you drive a Mercedes. Again, I'm not sure that's true, but that's the that's the, the logic out there or vice versa. The other one I've heard too, you talked about them tracking and knowing where you are in the stores is because they know I drive a Mercedes. I don't drive a Mercedes, but I'm using that as an example. The sticker price will be higher because they know that you can afford a higher price and that turns people off this whole concept. And so I feel like there's some miscommunication out there and are you lobbying or what's the approach to that?
2: So there's a lot of um, speculation like that. My experience working now with these kinds of data for more than 10 years and working with the other kind of data for much longer is that businesses and particularly Canadian businesses are very conscientious about the ethical use of data. There is a, a story that come, in my view, from bad actors who really want to undermine the use of data and is kind of consistent with a general era of you know, fake news and like, why would we not want to use facts? Number one. Number two, I don't believe that I've seen any evidence of predatory pricing. Which is the greedy
0: capitalists just trying to charge more, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's not the practice I see. What I see is brands really wanting to engage with consumers in ways that delight them. And, you know, in the, I think, mid-90s, I remember when we were really doing a lot of targeting for direct mail, someone said to me, you know, are you responsible for the junk mail we get? And I said, no, we're responsible for the junk mail you don't get because if brands and advertisers and retailers use data responsibly, they actually give the consumer a better experience. If you're getting information over your your phone and your computer and it does take into account things to know about you, then I believe you'll get a better offer. I don't see evidence of you getting a higher price because of that. But I do see you getting a better offer. Now, there is also the problem that there's, in technology, there can be fraud and there can be a lot of messaging that's not based on real data. But the secret sauce in solving that problem, in my view, is that we're getting so much closer to being able to go from the ad to the result. And, you know, right now, there aren't the best, there's not the best capability to measure the ROI. Yeah, uh, of the targeting but we're getting better at that and as we get better and better you know if it doesn't work for the consumer then the brand is not going to benefit from that and sure. then they're gonna have to change their tactics. So I don't believe it's true. I got a
0: couple ads a couple of apps right now on my phone that are popping up the ads and the ads are all in Chinese, which makes me worried that I'm I'm getting hacked or something. Somebody's <laughs> in there looking at stuff they shouldn't be. It's misaligned advertising. <laughs> yeah.
1: Let's we'll talk about how this applies to to real estate, you know, to Aaron's example, I assume you couldn't list a property for sale and tailor the price by postal code. But how do you apply this in the real estate world for profit? I assume this is probably the ultimate goal for my developers would uh Speaking with uh, your company.
2: Yeah, there are a lot of use cases that relate to site location, and although there's not a lot of new, there definitely is some new investment. And so, you know, where are the gaps? Like we saw Canada's population grow from the last two censuses by 5.4%, which is quite moderate growth. And that's pretty similar if you're dealing with the major markets, but there's some very significant B markets where the growth was between 9 and 18%. So our data can really, you know, help look at growth. We can also look at things like immigration. We know how many immigrants are coming to this country, and we know this country can't survive without that. But what kind of shopping they're going to do and where they're going to settle, you know, again, we know the countries of origin, but we just developed a new product where we can actually understand for the past year which... Countries of origin are growing the fastest. And so the ones that we have known to be kind of the source of immigration are starting to change. And what impact does that have? Are they still just going to Toronto and and Vancouver? No, they're going out to other markets. And this can have a big impact when people are looking at expansion opportunities. Inside the malls and inside the, the commercial development, there's also the question of what's the right mall mix? You know, we know that people are coming back. And we know that even though, you know, when I socialize and stuff, there's this perception of a lot of empty space. We know actually there's quite a bit of competition for space. So helping the developers understand what the right use is in different areas, given how things are changing, given how, you know, maybe people clearly aren't going downtown as much, but what are the things they're doing locally? So we can provide them with those current movement patterns and link them back to a bunch of other data to really help them offer to their prospective tenants, different kinds of benefits over different properties. We can help on the, on the residential real estate side. Our data are on many websites, you know, the association websites and organizations, other organizations that are the quick lookup for people who want to understand here's, I'm moving from out of town. Here's the kind of property, here's the kind of lifestyle I'm interested. You know, what are the demographics? What are the behaviors? What are these attitudes of the people to actually look at a potential property and see what the area around it's like? So anything from very simple consumer tools to stuff that really helps with the investments and and the promotion of properties by the developers. Any
1: data points you come across that would, you know, dispel a real estate myth? I mean, you kind of touched on already that yeah, I mean, everybody always says immigrants land in Toronto, and Vancouver, which is true. They do in large numbers, but there are a number of other cities benefiting from that uh, inflow uh, in the you know in the short term as well. Any other real estate myths that you've seen that the data goes against?
2: They're kind of myths, but I also think that the industry is smart enough to to start monitoring. So that that's I mean, a big one I mentioned earlier is that e- even though the population growth is relatively slow, it's really differentiated in different areas. Another one is the question right now of, you know, are people going to go back to work? You know, there's a lot of sentiment that nobody's going to want to go back to the office ever. But what we're seeing is for different locations, for different types of work and for different demographic subgroups within the, the kind of workforce, there are a lot of people who want to be back to work for different reasons. So this is all still in a state of flux. And what I find very interesting is in talking with most of our clients, who are our developer clients, is they know that you, well. You got to look at the big trends. You also have to look at, especially in Canada, you got to look at urban versus rural. That, that's another one, by the way. You know, there's a number of of kind of chain locations that may be relatively saturated in in urban and suburban in the large markets, but there's a lot of opportunity in the smaller markets, if you get the formatting right, to kind of look at expansion in different places. So to me, the changes that are taking place is are giving lots of opportunity to test some of those old myths.
0: We're almost out of time, Jan. I appreciate you've got to get to your, your panel. So maybe the last question.
2: I can... Over a okay. Bit. Okay. Well we'll,
0: well, we'll go for a couple more minutes, and this may be a two or three-part question, depending on the answer. So, <laughs> anyway, do you have some time in your hands? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what are the most interesting changes in the statistics of the data that you review that's changed as a result of COVID, and that you would believe are not a not a blip, but an actual, you know, full-on here to stay?
2: Okay. So I'm going to caveat it by saying we're a little bit. It's, it's a little early. bit early to sure. understand what's a blip and what's not. But but things like like I just mentioned, like they certainly COVID definitely accelerated the path to online shopping. But the idea that okay, now we're over that hump and everything's gonna be online, that that's already been dispelled, even in the past four months of you know, people going back to stores. Are they going back to stores to shop or are they going back to stores to see and then shop online? We're still gonna see that. You know, last year, with the supply chain problems, a lot of people really wanted to go out and shop early. But now, you know, with the economic challenges, are people going to wait a little longer and see if, you know, that we're going to get that better bargain later on in December? So those are the kinds of things that the data are starting to help us understand. I've been very intrigued by the kind of quick service restaurant, food delivery service, grocery store. How does that come together? And again, it's... Um, different combinations in different neighborhoods depending on, you know, different lifestyles. Like, people don't have time in some cases and they d- they can't afford in other cases. So, you know, we got to start putting these kind of multidimensional things together to understand what the trend's going to be. I do think how the synergy happens between the online and the bricks and mortar can really help with new decisions in areas where you might not just have the capacity to have a a store everywhere. Like one of the things that's been quite interesting is to see Ikea open up that small format store in downtown Toronto. And I read in a retail newsletter last week that they're going to try in a few other places because if you don't have a, a destination store for something like that, but you still can have, you know, kind of showrooms or you can have pickup places, it's changing the dynamic And those sort of feeder towns and rural areas that might not have been in scope for some, not just that example, they might now become in scope and then that provides opportunities for developers to put, you know, kind of pick up places in more remote areas and stuff, so... There's lots of exciting things that are coming.
1: I think you touched on another myth there. Retail is not dead. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh.
2: You know, but just so unbelievable how that story just circulates. And there's so much, there's so many great things happening. And because we work for so many different industries during COVID, we saw, you know, the ones that were really impacted. But even within that, you know, we saw people being innovated, like the quick service restaurants, at the beginning, you know, was like quite a shock. But then what happened, they they really, really upped their ante in terms of pickup. And, and then more, you know, not fine dining, but the in-between restaurants who really got into the pickup game. So, yeah, it's not dead at all. <laughs> and uh, I think whatever, we, we spend another time talking about the differences in attitudes and behaviors of Canadians and Americans. But I think in Canada, the one trend we see is that Canadians really are not giving up shopping in stores.
0: You know, it's interesting. From a real estate perspective, you can get into these conversations because ultimately you know, our business is to provide shelter, right? Whether that's for whatever use of bricks and mortar and you kind of provide statistics and information for decision-making on it, all types of all types of shelter. So it's, it's a really fascinating conversation. Very last question, 50 years in, Is this the most exciting time of your career?
2: Well, of course, because things are... More data, you can go through more data, you can process more data, you can find more. But I I want to say two two things about that. First of all, yeah, always having more data and being able to do new things is really exciting. But when you think about malls and large retailers, they are becoming more than just a shopping experience. You know, malls are being reimagined as centers of communities with different things that you can do there. And different experiences. And so I think that's really exciting. And the one thing I didn't mention yet is that two years ago, we sold our business to Bell Canada. And um, people said, oh, that's weird. Why would a telecom buy a data business? But Bell Canada bought our data because their mission is to connect Canadians. And they bought our data and have kept our data, kept our business running as a separate business, providing information to themselves into other telecoms and other broadcasters and serving the whole Canadian industry because of a commitment to invest in making sure that Canada is competitive by being data-driven. And so what's really exciting is they've enabled, their investment in our business has enabled us to do all the great things we've been doing for 20 or 30 years and really use take advantage of new technology. And so the new technology that we're building to make these data more accessible to make data come out more often instead of quarterly reports if you can get a weekly report so what's exciting for me is the opportunity on the outside but also that we have investment now to take all the things we know how to do and actually you know embed it on the chip really build technology that makes yeah. it more powerful to produce Love data. Love to see
0: StatsCan just have some sort of data analytic tool that you can just kind of play with and never actually have to just read these yeah. static stats.
2: So I am one of the nine advisors appointed by the Privy Council to advise Statistics Canada and the minister responsible to Statistics Canada on the health of the national statistical system. And Statistics Canada is regarded as one of the premier statistical agencies in the world. And one of the things that they're doing, which comes back to this argument of, we need to educate the public around why data are so important to their lives. Statistics Canada is working on that modernization journey as well. And that objective to make their data more accessible and more usable is very much a part of that program. But we also take their data and we put it into platforms and software to make it more accessible because it's a partnership game in the end. Governments and private sector have to work together to that end so that people can get data, so that the data are usable, and that the data are affordable so that they're available to big and small businesses and also so that they can help you know, researchers and other people understand yeah, there's more. There's a whole so, education side to yeah, it too. Yeah,
1: yeah. Jan, you've got speaking duties coming up in a panel, so we should we should let you go. We won't be invited back if we make you late for that. So this is the end of our, our speaker video series of the Toronto Real Estate Forum with Jan Kessel, president of Environics Analytics. We want to thank our sponsors for this episode, Dow Vukovic, ML Emporio Properties, RICOM, and Turner Townsend, First National Course for Powering the Podcast. Jan, thanks a lot for sharing this uh, interesting world that you live in with us.
2: Thanks. Thanks very much for having me.
0: Welcome to the commercial real estate podcast after show where Adam and I talk about the conversation with Jan Kessel. This was an interesting one. You know, I kind of joke at times, some of these podcasts that we do get a little repetitive. And if you're a longtime listener, maybe you're like, oh, I've heard that before. And that's probably true. We have never had this conversation, at least not that I can remember. Maybe now I'm just insulting another guest. No, you (laughs) talked to me about it. But I don't remember having this particular conversation just about the experience of big data in commercial real estate. And I found it really interesting. as I was sitting here talking to Jan. She so said, she's been doing this for five decades. And now it's just it's getting the most exciting it's ever been. And I didn't even ask her about what the implications are of quantum computing. And all of a sudden, when you can start tabulating or calculating endless amounts of data at the push of a button, where it probably would have taken six months of work with a big team to do it before.
1: It really is an extremely exciting field. She's talking about, you know, was it terabytes of data that they are downloading on a daily basis? Yeah, that requires a fair bit of sifting and sorting and processing and refining to make it uh, useful. And you're getting that dump every day. I'm sure there's technology lags or gaps that maybe doesn't get it where she wants to be. And we were joking afterwards, though, you know, if you were born in 1850 and you were a dedicated statistician, your ability to access data probably didn't really change too much over, you know, the 40 years of career, whereas now especially the time frame she's talking about, it's just got to be a different world in terms of what she can access and then apply your statistician's mind to to derive a benefit, a result, uh, a profitable decision out of.
0: One of the things I thought was really interesting is that you know, we talk about these big data drive decisions and the irony of the concept of big data is that it's all in the micro details. And so my brain goes to just these layers of grids, right? And you just take a hundred different grids. Each grid is a thousand know, by a thousand. You lay them on top of each other. And then you have to basically connect how all those thousand by thousand grids, and there's a hundred of them stacked on top of each other, compute to, I should build here. <laughs>
1: a green light, red light, yeah. a
0: one or a zero, just binary. And to her point, I mean, Jan talked about how you got to filter the false positives and the positive falses and make sure that the data has integrity and is repetitive and all of the different things that, I, you know, obviously I have no way of understanding that I'm sure very, very complicated mathematics to get to that answer. So you go, yeah, we need big data. But it's really about just the minutiae of the detail in order to actually help with that decision-making.
1: So big data drives decisions, but it's extremely complicated. And then what follows decisions is hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars into a thesis. Yeah,
0: you know, and I didn't ask about this either, which is the impact
1: of artificial intelligence and machine learning and, you
0: know, robotic process automation and the way that that must be having significant impacts on the ability for, again, think of that visualization of, hundred thousand by thousand grids stacked on top of each other, you or I would never be able to do it. A very, very smart mathematician probably would take them hours, days, weeks to figure out just the relationship, the correlation between all those different data points. And yet AI machine learning is probably instant. We're still relying on gut feel. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But just the ability to teach the robots how to figure out the relationship, the correlations. Again, now I'm getting way beyond my scope, but I find it very, very interesting.
1: (laughs) The next chance we get to have a guest come on and talk about that, we will take it. So any listeners out there who are saying, this is my field. yeah, Come with a chart, come with PowerPoints and a whiteboard. We're going to have to scratch it out because it deserves diagrams. That is it for the Jan Kessel After Show. Thanks to her for coming on and look forward to seeing her again in the future. See you soon, everybody.
0: Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario license number 10514 and 11252.